Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a fucking big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays and electrical tin openers. Choose good health, low cholesterol and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose a three-piece suite on higher purchase and a range of fucking fabrics. Choose DIY and wondering who the fuck you are on a Sunday morning. Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing fucking junk food into your mouth. away at the end of it all, pissing your last in a miserable home, nothing more than an embarrassment to the selfish, fucked up brats that you've spawned to replace yourselves. Choose your future. Choose life. But why would I want to do a thing like that? I chose not to choose life. I chose something else. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got head on? My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And um, before I begin with this week's episode, um, I just need to do a little bit of housekeeping first. I've had a couple of emails from people asking if they could donate to the podcast, and this is something that's actually happened before, and something I've discussed before. And of course, it's always massively flattering that people um feel the urge to to make such an offer but as i've kind of said to them privately in emails and i've said on the on the show before the overheads for this are minimal at best i I think like a few pounds a month in in hosting fees so it, it would be completely wrong of me to um ask for or accept donations from listeners it's just not something which i feel uh would would be right but you can support the podcast by either leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to it. And that, that really does help um, get the word out or just set, tweet out links or post them up on Facebook just to kind of spread the word a little bit because I have noticed quite a, um, a, a sharp rise in subscribers recently and it'd be nice to kind of keep the momentum going. So if you wish to support the podcast, please do um, spread the word and leave reviews and whatnot. And, and also... As, as well just emailing me anyway with any feedback that you have is always very welcome and it, it, it's really nice that I get so many emails from people all over the world and it's incredible it, it motivates me to put out more episodes so um, with that out of the way um, there was uh, on my last episode I did do a, a competition to identify a mistake I made um, and the, the winner um, tweeted me the correct answer within within a few hours actually and uh, was the recipient of a punch drunk love criterion blu-ray i might do something similar with giveaways in, in the future i think it might be something quite nice to uh, to kind of incorporate into shows i'm gonna have a bit of a think about it and see if there's something i can come up with in the way we can kind of um do a competition i'm i'm seeing trying to make it quite hard deliberately quite hard and uh perhaps do it with kind of clips from films or something like that but I, I will uh, I will have a think about it and, c- and come back to you 
So without any further ado, I'm going to get on with this week's episode. In it, I'm going to be talking about the recent BFI Blu-ray release of Victor Ruiz's El Sir. And I'm going to be going back in time and taking a look at Trainspotting and its recent sequel, T2. Relinquishing junk, stage one, preparation. For this you will need one room which you will not leave, soothing music, tomato soup, ten tins of, mushroom soup, eight tins of, for consumption cold, ice cream, vanilla, one large tub of, magnesia, milk of, one bottle, paracetamol, mouthwash, vitamins, mineral water, leucoside, Pornography. One mattress, one bucket for urine, one for feces, and one for vomitus. One television and one bottle of Valium, which I've already procured from my mother, who is, in her own domestic and socially acceptable way, also a drug addict. And now I'm ready. All I need is one final hit to soothe the pain while the Valium takes effect. There is much to be said for the old expression, be careful what you wish for, especially when it comes to films. And yes, I will admit, I am really looking forward to the Blade Runner sequel. But deep down, if I'm honest, I've never wanted a sequel or indeed felt one was even necessary for Blade Runner. Aside from having one of the least convincing romances in the history of film, it is a nearly damn right perfect film in its own right. So as much as I like the idea of going back into that world, I cannot help feel a nagging sense of dread. I would be a lot happier if this was just a sequel taking place in the universe of Blade Runner, but we know already that Harrison Ford is in it, so despite all the logic and evidence, I have a sneaking suspicion this film will confirm the daft idea that Deckard is a replicant. Do we need that? No. Will it ruin Blade Runner? Well, no, but it might sully its legacy somehow. Certainly as time goes by, Blade Runner will be two films for future generations. Perhaps I'm being just a bit miserable or overly pessimistic. And yes, the history of cinema is full of sequels. Some are terrible, but some are also very, very good, if not actually better than the original. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy sequels when they're made for the right reasons. Which brings us to Trainspotting 2. A sequel to Trainspotting has long been in gestation. Irvin Welsh wrote Porno, which I haven't read yet, the film sequel had not been forthcoming. Danny Boyle had famously something of a falling out with Ewan McGregor over the film The Beach, and although a script was worked on by Andrew McDonald, all were concerned for some years that it just wasn't happening. Until that is a couple of years ago when cast and crew got back together and began flashing out ideas which would eventually come into fruition as Trainspotting 2 or T2 as it's being known as. Now before I talk about that I want to go back 20 years and have a look at the original film. I was doing my A-levels and in retrospect it was bar none the happiest time of my life and much of that has to do with the culture. 
my life was about movies and music. It was a time when Oasis seemed genuinely good and going to the cinema was kind of a big deal. And of course house parties with booze and the odd bit of weed were, were sometimes the highlight of when parents went away. It was really a simpler time, there were no mortgage or kids and crap to deal with. And out of all that came a British film that kind of came out of nowhere it seemed and somewhat broadsided us. And of course it was train spotting. It was literally everywhere, the posters on the wall, I did not have one I'm hasten to add, the soundtrack with Underworld and Iggy Pop, and then of course the film itself. I was slightly too young to see it at the cinema, but by God did we watch a lot of films on VHS, and this was one of the first I seem to remember going out and buying the day it came out. We also even double dipped when a few months later they released a green edition that had some deleted scenes on it. It was a bona fide cultural phenomenon, ushering in the age of cool Britannia, and really it was a great time to be a lie. I recall the weather actually being nice, you could get drunk on 10 quid, and all this was underpinned by what endlessly rewatching a film about heroin addicts with dead babies and some friends screwing each other over. Yet for its apparent misery, Train Spotting is a strangely uplifting film. E Pop's lust for life doesn't seem ironic given the character's choice of lifestyle. It's more a rallying cry against conformity. I've said it before, I'm sure, on this podcast, but my mother and father have always represented something of a banal type of life to me. They are literally the embodiment of white middle class safety. Their curries are not too hot. They don't like music other than Bette Midler. They like films with nice endings, they adhere to the speed limit, they read the Daily Mail, and they think there's something massively subversive about having a drink before their allotted cut-off hour. All well and good for them, but to me it always seemed so crushingly dull, and I have made a concise effort over the years not to be like them, which didn't manifest itself in taking heroin, but I did want to live a little. I made a conscious effort to go to a university far away from where we live and stretch my wings a bit. And I watched films that were not just the normal typical Hollywood fare. I tried to find more obscure music and books. And all of this really, I think, can be traced back to the effect Trainspotting had on me. It is literally not bombastic to say it did change my life for the better after I saw it. And with the mid-90s, it seems there was a genuine air of optimism in the air that something better was on the horizon for us all. And indeed it was. The country had come from Thatcherism and a Tory government under John Mal Major sorry, was in its last days. Tony Blair and New Labour were waiting in the wings and everything was going to be great. Trainspotting seemed to capture this transitional mood. Renton, Sick Boy and Co gave a proverbial middle finger to the notion of simply being following the herd, and along with Danny Boyle's electrifying direction, Trainspotting woke me up as what the British films could be. I didn't watch many contemporary British films. It was either the likes of Mike Lee, whose films reminded me of a feature-length episodes of EastEnders from the 1980s, or m miserable rom-coms made by a cabal of Oxford University graduates starring Hugh Grant, complete with songs that would be number one in the charts for 30 weeks. I was lost in American cinema, and despite obviously liking people like David Lean, who actually seemed to make films that like scale, for me I didn't really pay much attention to homegrown cinema at all, which was what made Trainspotting so captivating. 
was the energy that I seemed to find was radiating from it. Trainspotting was about young people who seemed to actually enjoy life, albeit on a very fringe way. It felt like a breath of fresh air. It was funny, dangerous and exciting. And it also had the kind of video nasty aspect to it. It was the kind of film that my parents would have hated, which made me like it all the more. So going back to it after 20 years was definitely an experience. I honestly cannot recall the last time I watched Trainspotting. I recall it's one of the first films to be released on DVD in the UK, costing a then staggering £25, but I managed to pick it up on Blu-ray for the bargain price of £5, and it was time to see if the film held up. And Trainspotting, not surprisingly, 20 years later, was an altogether different experience. I'm obviously older now, and my memories of my late teens are far behind. And whereas I used to find Trainspotting representing a kind of reckless hope, I found it a more profoundly depressing affair. It feels as if it has come culturally full circle since the time it was made. We had been through Blair and his wars and now we're back to the Tories again and things are kind of going to shit with Brexit and the fact that it looks like that's going to put this country back many, many years. And it seems youth had its chance and royally fucked it up. And in the intervening years, I've also watched a lot more films. And when I saw Train Spotting originally, I had no idea about Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. And what struck me about this revisit were the similarities between the two, quite striking and indeed obviously entirely intentional. It's even visually referenced during a nightclub scene. Like Alex before him, Renton's voiceover acts as a window into a world which seems so very foreign to us. Why would anyone really wish to get into heroin? Well, it is quite simple as Renton assures us. Heroin is absolutely fucking amazing and the pursuit of it is a lifestyle choice in of itself. Indeed, it is a full-time job as he later says. In doing so, one excludes themselves from mainstream society and with its opening monologue, train spotting establishes characters and disconnect from the world. Choosing life with all its complexities and indeed trivialities is when objectively observed a rather boring pursuit. I have literally overheard people at work cooing and fawning over floor tiles. Oh, how will they look? Will they suit your curtains, etc, etc. And what's worse, I even do it myself. I actually bore myself to fucking death a lot of the time, let alone anyone around me who's, who at present is hearing my t current woes of decorating my house. I am literally obsessing over floors, fireplaces, and what blinds to have. It's absolutely fucking mind-numbing. Trainspotting offers The Other, a world in which existence is singularly based around the pursuit of heroin. It eliminates triviality, the banal, the dull, to give you, however fleeting, a moment of total and utter relenting joy. It sounds amazing. Yet the byproduct is, of course, you are a heroin addict, and as this film shows, this is a relentlessly awful experience. And this is what so struck me about Train Spotting now. It has to be the age I'm at, or a tiny amount of wisdom, but I know what heroin does. A few weeks ago, I was walking through Manchester in the early morning and saw a man sleeping rough. Two things struck me about him. One was how well dressed he was in relation to his situation. He had a decent pair of jeans on, etc. and whatnot. But secondly, how clearly dedicated to the cause he had become. The first thing he did upon waking was begin the process of shooting up. It was a depressing, awful spectacle. 
And this is how transporting has come to me now. Seeing it was jarring, I found myself on several occasions looking away as Renton, Sickboy and Spud and Co shot up. In A Clockwork Orange, Alex's voiceover reveals that he's intellectually more capable than his on-screen actions suggest. Because he is a thug, we expect his behaviour to be mindless. However, clearly he is not. He is cultured, witty and able to deconstruct and self-analyse what he does. Renton is very much the same. He is a heroin addict. We know this is a poor lifestyle choice. Yet the lucidity in which he's able to contextualise and rationalise his situations makes for a kind of disconnect between who you hear and who you see on screen. We want Mark to get off heroin because we know inherently he is a good person despite the fact we see him robbing and stealing and going through the whole process of messing up his life. Mark's friends are on the whole more of a life sentence. Begbie is still terrifying and clearly psychotic. Sick Boy is the sneaky annoying one who will screw anyone over. Spud the likeable idiot who deep down would never harm a fly and of course Tommy the one who seems vaguely sensible. Transporting's tragedy is embodied in Tommy. Fit, healthy and apparently reasonably sane, his descent into addiction and eventual death shows the cruelty of the drug. We're also totally aware that the root cause of his breakdown is Renton stealing a videotape of him and his partner having sex. And then the screwing over does make for one of the film's funniest moments. I always had the nagging doubt really that Renton really never kind of deals with or acknowledges the fact that he is responsible for Tommy's ultimate death. Trainspotting comes in a long line of British films about the experience of being young and the disconnect between older and younger generations. Along with A Clockwork Orange, I, was, I saw echoes of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the feeling of alienation with mainstream culture and the pursuit of a savage kind of individualism. These films are not about wider politics. Per se, the government isn't to blame for the heroin taking and trainspotting. It is in effect a kind of liberal nightmare in which those actually doing the heroin explicitly state the reasons why and it doesn't involve having to point the finger at someone else's failings. Renton makes it explicitly clear heroin is a lifestyle choice, he is deliberately choosing not to become involved in what he perceives as the drudgery of modern life. And what happens when he does finally kick heroin with the help of his family? Well he realises possibly that moving down to London and getting a job isn't the worst thing at all really and what you don't hear in the film is him lamenting or regretting what comes what he's done before and I think that's a very important point to make about train spotting. Much of the film's charm comes from the fact that it feels like a truly independent film and not trying to placate or be anything other than its own thing and much of that comes from the spirit of which it was made. Trainspotting had a quite small budget of £1.5 million and was shot mostly in an abandoned factory and much of it was filmed in one take due to time constraints. As a result, Trainspotting has a frantic energy about it. Much of the information is contained in the voiceover. We don't need dialogue scenes to know what people are thinking because we are being told what's going on. I would contest that Trainspotting is a narratively very slender film. It's not gripping in the traditional sense and it feels incredibly organic as to how the story unfolds. There is a sense you are just there along for the ride. We assume possibly the film will be about Mark getting off heroin. And this does occur relatively early on, leaving nearly 40 minutes for the rest of the film to be told. Nothing feels forced in train spottings. The characters don't seem to have a master plan. What happens, happens, and despite the fact that most 
part fairly deplorable, you can't help but root for them, and Trainspotting propels you along with its narrative drive. Even after all these years, Trainspotting still feels like a breath of fresh air. Danny Boyle is a director who I admire more, possibly, than I like his films, which is part down to the fact he seems always to make the films he wants to. With Trainspotting, which I do consider to be his best film, I have no doubt he probably wanted more money, but the finished product speaks for itself. He makes amazing use of space and locations to convey meaning and subtext. It may seem ironic that the wallpaper in Mark's bedrooms features trains, but it's also a comment on the relationship with his parents. This room is a kind of time capsule, Mark to them has never really grown up, and it indicates the vast difference between them. Boyle frames his characters often in wide shots in enclosed spaces, and they often seem small to the world around them given the kind of spatial disconnect, emphasising the emptiness of the real world when they're not using drugs. And obviously this is a grimy, horrible world, pubs in it are in need of tearing down, houses with cheap, terrible furniture that haven't been decorated in years, sleazy cheap nightclubs and overpriced bedsit. Trainspotting's world is the apparent left behind, yet unlike the traditional British social realist film that we often being seen touted, Trainspotting no, makes no bones about the fact that it is playing with fantastical elements. Here there is a kind of abstraction to what we see in the same vein as A Clockwork Orange again. It's hard to really date the film, it could be the 70s, 80s or 90s, but on the whole it has a look of a film that is slightly skewed from reality. We recognise it in some respects, but it's unlike anything we've really seen in the real world. The infamous toilet scene is indicative of this. Renton leaves the real world to literally dive into the toilet and retrieve some depositories before emerging sodden wet and walking through the betting shop, squealing as he does. It gives the film a kind of disclaimer, as if it is sort of saying, yes, there is some reality here, but this also is taking part in the fantastical. And of course it gives license to Trainspotting to show in a very creative way the feelings of using heroin, from literally sinking into carpets to dead babies walking on ceilings. And of course then there's a soundtrack from A Perfect Day to Born Slippy. The music is ironic and iconic and was the must-buy CD of the time. It's a hard film to get through and my feelings have changed considerably. I've got older, I'm different. I have chosen life, so to speak, and it has made me slightly nostalgic. I think one of the most important things in our lives is growing old with films and our relationships with them changing. And yes, my perception of Trainspotting has changed a great deal, but it's still a brilliant film. It made me want to go and explore the world and do some crazy shit, and that's the power of film, I guess, and why I love them. So this brings me back to the beginning of the episode, which is when we love films, are we sometimes just better off leaving them where they are? Do we really want to know what happens next? Well, now Trainspotting 2, or T2 as it's known as, is here, and it's Danny Boyle's first sequel. And the question is, is T2 worth it? Hello, Mark. So what you been up to for 20 years? Choose life. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and hope that someone, somewhere cares. Missed you, mate. I missed you too, Spud. Choose looking up old flames, wishing you'd done it all differently. Do you still take heroin? No. And choose watching history repeat itself. Oh, Franco. Simon, 
I'm home. Choose your future. Call the police. What shall I say? Just tell them we're dead. Choose reality TV, slot shaming, revenge porn. Yeah. Choose a zero hour contract, a two hour journey to work, and choose the same for your kids, only worse. And smother the pain with an unknown dose of an unknown drug made in somebody's kitchen. And then take a deep breath. Addict. So be addicted. Just be addicted to something else. Choose the ones you love. Choose your future. Choose life. Okay, so I might be one of the only people who truly, really hated the Netflix series Stranger Things. It annoyed me because it was just nostalgia heaped on nostalgia heaped on nostalgia. There was nothing original about it whatsoever. It annoyed me almost constantly, the baying for people's nostalgia memories from giving you clips out the Goonies or E.T. and to cap things off the poster for the thing in the kid's den. I hated it and I know I, I sound like a misery, but I just simply failed to see where all the love for this show was coming from. Which brings me to Trainspotting 2 or T2 as I will refer to it going forward, because I was reminded of the reasons why I disliked Stranger Things watching this film. It felt forced in every conceivable way. Now, I said before that the original Train Spotting was a film whereby you feel that you are on, the, on there for the ride, a bunch of stuff happens, and you just go along with it. T2, again written by John Hodge, and this time feels far more like a screenplay in the traditional sense. In fact, the film that it reminded me most in the Boyle Hodge canon was Trance, a film that I was not particularly keen on, it has to be said. And I began to not enjoy T2 at the point when I realised this wasn't going to be so much about the characters as it was about forcing situations on them that reminded us, the viewer, why we liked them in the first place. T2 is a film about the past. It is supposed to make you feel nostalgic from teasing you a slowed down version of Born Slippy from flashbacks to the first film and recreating moments beyond the timeline of that first train spotting. It constantly bangs you over the head that Renton, Spud, Sick Boy are people that you used to like. And it's true, we do like these characters, but sadly this is not the vehicle for them. I will begin with the film's most fatal flaw. T2 simply isn't that gripping to sustain interest. Once we get over Mark returning and the inherent danger this entails, T2 needs a reason to make something happen. And it does this by shoehorning in a rather dull tale of revenge played out by the main protagonists. They're essentially still the same old, same old characters. And Mark being the slightly cleverer one, 
as well as the still inherently awful sick boy, or Simon as we now have to call him. Yet I have not seen a screenplay so full of convenience as this in a long time. Some of it actually borders on the ridiculous. And this is lazy screenwriting to facilitate some actually quite decently filmed moments. Take the inevitable reunion of Renton and Beg Boy. It is brilliantly handled and filmed. I actually squeamed as either party realised what was happening on. But you cannot get over the fact that the circumstances for them coming together are so ridiculous that it's actually almost insulting. And yes, I know it's a film. And yes, I know this is a film. But the whole point of this is for you to go, hey, you remember what it was like thinking about what would happen if Begbie and Renton ever got together again? Well, here's that moment. And I think it's quite telling that the screenplay is this bad because quite obviously no one had ever really known the circumstances by which it would happen. No one bothered to create a genuinely interesting and worthwhile reason for this reunion to occur. It's just happening because we know it has to. A train spotting sequel demands that they meet, but in reality, it was always best off left to the imagination. It feels like a conflicted film trying to service two needs. On the one hand, we want to catch up with these characters and we do generally find out more about them, who they are and what they are, and in this respect, it is quite successful. I think in particular, the scene where we see a flashback to a young Begbie and his father, and how in the present, and how this informs him in the present to at least have the self-awareness to step away from one particular situation. But all this is washed away because T2's clunky and dull central through line. It's neither compelling nor exciting. Trainspotting was about simplicity. This is possibly trying a little too hard to be clever, feeling more like a heist movie at times. But you can see what's going to happen a mile off when Spud talks about being a great forger. Well, it's not just there for the fun, is it? And it's also a bigger film with its crane shots and helicopter work. It has a notably bigger visual experience to it. Boyle has changed as a director over the years. He's virtually an A-list director now. And the result of this is slightly too polished for my liking. He has clearly settled into something of a routine as to how he shoots and now despite the odd visual flourish I found his work here mostly to be everything that I've seen from him before. You don't think he's evolved as an artist while shooting T2 and again I rather wonder if this was rather down to the rather mundane story that was being told. I also feel it misses a trick. Scotland voted to remain in the UK. Why? Well I have absolutely no idea but surely there's an opportunity here to discuss this current state of Scotland. Trainspotting was made before the beginning of New Labour. This was made after the, the referendum and a historic moment in Scotland's history. Instead, its politics is confined to a moderately amusing scene where Renton and Simon uh, serenade some loyalists in a bar. But surely so much has changed. Where is Scotland now? I wanted the film to go down this avenue and it simply, straight, it simply stayed away from it. One aspect that I did enjoy, however, was the prominence of Spud in the film. Mark is oddly aloof, his lack of voiceover leaves us more open to simply judge him on what we see, and in fairness, he does seem a bit of a dick when we, have, when we don't have his conspiratorial asides on the voiceover. Spud, however, gets the chance to shine. Ewan Bremer is brilliant in this role, I think, and he, he's still fucking up interviews, and he's still, his life is still dominated by heroin addiction. Yet he's the most vulnerable and deep down he's a lovely guy who just needs a bit of direction to get his life back on track. 
his method for challenging his energy away from heroin is lays the foundations for him to have a better life beyond the film. I just honestly hope that we don't get to see it. We never really wanted or asked for a sequel to Trainspotting. It didn't need one. Yes, this fills some blanks and enriches the characters in some way, but that can be true of any film. We know how Han Solo came about owning the Millennium Falcon, and the chances are we're going to see that now. Did we want to know about the first time Renton and Simon did Heron? Well, no, not really, but The Godfather Part 2 works because it carries on with the story. It doesn't exist to show us more, it exists to further the saga in the same way Empire Strikes Back and The Hunger Games and so on and so on. This is a different kind of sequel. It's a catch-up sequel. It's a dropping-in sequel. It's, you know, oh, I loved Trainspotting when I was young, so I'm going to go and watch this one. And that was a film that defined my youth, I suppose. It was reckless, it was carefree, it made up its own rules. If it were a car, it'd be a vintage MG with turbochargers added in it just for fun. T2 is a film about you now. It's safer, it's a little bit more predictable. If it were a car, it'd be a Volvo, fuel efficient and reasonable. Deep down, we know it kind of makes sense, but it even shames me to admit that I've grown up, but I still like going off the rails occasionally, and Trainspotting never does that. It's just fine, and really, that's not saying very much at all. I dare say curiosity will get the better of a lot of people now go and watch T2. Sadly, for years of development, I simply don't think what we get was worth the wait, and I honestly really hope that we just leave it alone now. I have no desire to go and watch this film ever again, and really, that is one of the saddest things I find. I suppose if it were to come on television, I might check it out, but for the time being, Train Spotting is just one film for me, and always will be, I think. Mi padre era capaz de hacer cosas que los demás casi veían como milagros. Los orígenes de mi padre siempre fueron para mí un auténtico misterio. Pasaba conmigo casi todo el día. En el sur casi nunca nieva. Porque nosotros nunca hemos ido por allí. Papá se fue y no ha querido volver. Algo que yo no lograba aclarar. Había sucedido a mi padre una vez. Oye, ¿es verdad que a mi padre le metieron preso? Cierta idea que hasta entonces había tenido de mi padre empezó a cambiar. Mi padre había llamado al sur a un número que yo no conocía. Fue como abrir los ojos y descubrir de repente que apenas sabía algo de él. Apenas pude dormir. Por fin okay so on to this episode's blu-ray review in which i'll be talking about victor eris's el sir i'll also be mentioning his uh, other most notorious work which was the spirit of the beehive but mainly i'm going to focus on el sir 
Now, whenever I hear about films being taken away and re-edited by studios or released in an incomplete form, I'm normally put off from watching them for fear I'll be unable to escape the feeling that what I am seeing is clearly inferior version of what could have been. I cannot bring myself to watch The Magnificent Ambersons, for example. It's as if as if I do, I will be admitting to myself that there is no perfect intact version of the film in a vault somewhere in the world. I want my first screening of that to be of that film to be the complete version, although I somehow doubt it will ever happen. It's nice to think that one day it might occur. In the case of Victorice's El Sir, this is a technically incomplete film, yet there is a caveat worth noting. Depending on who you listen to, producer Elias Corrigetta stopped production of the film having decided that at 95 minutes it was fine just how it was. Now certainly we know that half the film was yet to be filmed when production stopped, yet he was satisfied that it was fit for release whereupon it was submitted to the Cannes Film Festival in 1983 and the rest as they say is history. I will begin by stating categorically, Elsa does not feel as if it is half finished and it stands as a complete and wholly satisfying experience as it is. Yes, it may not represent the director's whole vision for the film and therefore the arcs he wanted its characters to go on may not be technically complete, but in lieu of that, Elsa is just fine as it is. One of the reasons why I think this connected with me so much was because it really reminded me in so many ways of the feelings I had towards my father growing up. He was, and still is to an extent, something of a mystery to me. Despite being a perfectly loving father, there has always been a distance with him that the younger me was fascinated by. For everything I knew about him, it seemed that he had an entire life that he did not talk about. So the story of Estrella, the film's lead character, trying to desperately connect with her father in Elsa instantly connected with me. Living in northern Spain with her mother and father Augustine, played by Amero Ranonati, we see Estrella from the ages of 8 to 15 trying to unravel the mystery of who her father is. Throughout we have a voiceover from Estrella in her adult life. And one of the mysteries of the films is that you can never be truly certain if what you are seeing is an accurate portrayal of reality. It begins with a slow fade in the scene bathed in the morning sun and we hear Estrella's mother Julia asking servants where Augustine is. Estrella seems to understand what his absence means and produces a pendulum given to her by her father. The pendulum swings back and forth. It is in the context of the film a metaphor for the life she lives in the north and the one that she imagines in the south with its intriguing history of who and what her father is or may have been. As the camera moves we jump back in time to Augustine using the same pendulum to apparently guess the sex of Estrella inside the womb of her mother. Yet we are told through the narration that this scene didn't actually occur, it is simply a story Estrella has invented and it really sets the tone for the film. I was never truly sure if I believed what I was watching in an Elsa was actually occurring. Now Augustine is by no means a bad person, we, like Estrella, simply don't know how quite what to make of him and she establishes a kind of mythical life for him. He's a water diviner and she even states in the narration that he performs things which other people could construe as being miracles. And he's no means a bad person. The mystery deepens when Estrella's paternal grandmother and Aunt Milagros, 
who raised Augustine come from the south for her Holy Communion. Some tantalising nuggets of information revealed. Augustine was at odds with his father. He had to leave the south and had become one of the bad people, all fueling Estrella's sense of wonder. She builds a vision of this kind of she builds a vision of the south as a kind of fairy tale paradise that she sees on postcards and descriptions from her grandmother and aunt. Where they live, it is cold. The winters are biting, and with Pedro Almodovar's regular DP Jose Luis Algain bathing the film in a kind of winter light orange glow throughout you sense that this is part of Spain very much cut off from the rest a place where people keep themselves to themselves both films are dealing with the aftermath of the Spanish civil war and Franco's dictatorship and Spirit of the Beehive was filmed in a similar type of location an outpost of sorts that was more of a stopping off place where people visit without any kind of specific reason. And it's interesting that Arise does this. This is not the picture postcard Spain that Estrella imagines the South to be. Yes, it has a kind of stark beauty to it, but these are places where people in need of exile gravitate towards. They are places where doctors and beekeepers on the losing side can shut themselves away from the past. And it's the past that hangs so heavy over Augustine. It is clear that what's happened to him has deeply affected him. He has been able to leave the South, but his historical connection to him has never been broken. We are unsure of the whys and hows, but it is logical to assume that his reason for leaving the South was due to his affiliation during the Civil War. He is not a Catholic, or at least he is not a practicing one shown in his decision to go shooting on the day of Estrella's communion. And that was one of the, the key elements of the Franco regime, was to, as, as, as all dictators do, which is they turn to the church to endorse their credentials in front of the masses. It's logical to assume perhaps he was a communist, yet either way the war has also seen him forced to move away from his true love, whom Estrella discovers is now a film star called Irene Rios. Augustine writes letters to her and watches at her at the cinema alone. The Spirit of the Beehive had a similar theme explored through Anna's mother Teresa who writes letters to her former lover. In both films, we don't see the damage of the war in a physical context. There are no bombed out buildings or damaged infrastructure. Instead, it seems Rousseau is suggesting that his legacy lies in the emotional and personal causes of those on the losing side. Augustine lives in the area which he calls no man's land, which is a fairly, which of course has a military connection, but is also a good metaphor for where he is spiritually. This nondescript town is an emotional prison of which he cannot escape. There is no indication that he's abusive to his wife and he appears to have great affection for Estrella, yet he lives in a kind of self-imposed exile, apparently conducting experiments locked away in his room, largely ignoring his family. A similar dynamic is shown in Spirit of the Beehive. Anna's family is only shown together in one scene. Most of the time they are separated from each other doing their own thing. Augustine visits the cinema to see Irene or Laura as he knew her as is also further evidence of how detached from reality his life has become. He literally loves the person he sees on the screen and we associate film with an escapist entertainment. Here it's a tragic reminder of the past for him. And in both Spirit of the Beehive and Elsa, what happens on screen has a direct result to the, the association with the characters who are watching it. Anna brings the screen to life in the form of literally bringing Frankenstein into it. And Augustine 
feels compelled to write to Irene or Laura after he sees her. It is a decidedly perhaps melodramatic touch to have the love of his life be now a film star, but it is truly larger in life and how terribly sad, therefore, that he goes to the cinema, not for the film itself, but to simply stare and reminisce at what could have been. In Spirit of the Beehive, Anna's mother Teresa's letters to her lover go unanswered. In a way, she keeps her former lover alive by not hearing back from him. It's a kind of mental purgatory. In El Sir, Augustine does receive correspondence back, rather bluntly telling him it's over and will never happen again. Yet the comparison with Teresa is all too clear. Due to the war, both have lost the loves of their lives. Both have a backstory we know from fragments. And we are left to wonder what they might be. Teresa's lover could have been wounded, taken to a safe place, they may have fought together, but the one fact we know is that she remains dedicated to him, as well as having a clear sexual longing for him also. In one of the film's earlier scenes, Teresa goes to the, tra goes to the train station and posts a letter on it. She looks up and sees young soldiers and other men on the carriages. Do they remind her of him, or does she simply desire them? Certainly it is hinted at in a scene where her husband Fernando gets into bed next to her. The camera remains fixed on her face as Fernando undresses. She pretends to fall asleep when on the soundtrack we hear the sound of a train in the distance and her eyes open. Is it possibly her lover coming back to her or is it the memory of the passengers facing her, faces reminding her of the sexual longing? Either way, it is clear Teresa's marriage does not satisfy on the level she requires. El Sir is such a subtle film that you almost don't appreciate how beautiful it is until the second or third viewing. Arisa has greatly influenced by the likes of Renoir, Rosalini, Ozu and painters such as Verma and Rembrandt. The cinematography makes great use of contrast with Augustine regularly appearing from darkness into light. It only furthers also the otherworldly quality to him. In particular at Estrella's communion we know he has not attended yet there is a scene showing him appearing. It is pure fantasy, yet Erisa has the most subtle ways presents it as it may as well be real. It has her father's present that Estrella wants so dear. The enigmatic nature of the film does not overplay the sequence, but instead simply reinforces the idea that Augustine is the constant force of fascination in her life. The film's standout moment for me came in a subtle fade showing Estrella and her dog riding on the road. In a simple fade, we move forward a few years. The leaves may have fallen on the road, but this simple moment of narrative compre compression says so much. Estrella is still nowhere truly understanding her, far her father. The environment has not changed. It's locked in a kind of stasis. It's a perfect metaphor for Estrella's relationship with Augustine. Time may pass and the seasons change, but the past is always with him. In spirit of the beehive, Anna burns her last letter to her former lover. Augustine, whilst having dinner with Estrella, hears the song that they dance to at her communion, and it clearly begins to bring joy. In spirit of the beehive, Teresa burns her last letter to her former lover. Augustine, whilst having dinner with Estrella, hears the song that they dance to at her communion. It clearly brings him joy to hear this. But once again, this memory is in the past. Augustine is a man adrift in Spain. The war has cast him ideologically and spiritually adrift. The past is a source of light and comfort, as the image of the South is for Estrella. Mirigal is left a tantalising off to Estrella to visit the South to complete the picture of her father. And there is, escape, there is hope of an escape for her from this no man's land. 
For Augustine, there is nothing, not even his daughter, can save him from himself. Elsur in the form we get is a tragic film in some respects. Its ending is strangely inevitable, yet again never feels forced or bombastic. It simply leaves you as it began with a gentle fade away. Eris has not made many films. He seems to make them when he wants, not when others do. We know there was more of Elsur to be shot, but in reality it's simply as perfect as it is. This is cinema at its most affecting. It is contemplative, captivating, but also accessible and hugely rewatchable. And BFI's Blu-ray more than does justice to its beautiful imagery. In the last throes of winter, this is a perfect accompaniment to the howling winds outside and already a contender for my home cinema release of the year. Okay, so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. You can find me on Twitter at 24Framescast. You can email me at 24Framescast at gmail.com. You can come over to 24Framescast.blogspot.com. I'm also on the Masters of Cinemacast with Joachim. Um, I will probably be, might be a little bit of a delay until the next episode. I have written it and I just need to kind of record it, but it could be quite a long one on one single film. So um, do bear with me. Many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.